Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, the years teach much, which the days never know. As I've shared before, and you'll share here again, I've worked in the, this financial services industry for a long time, and I've been really blessed and fortunate to see a number of people over the years succeed in, in building a portfolio and, and sticking to a plan that ultimately provided them a, a comfortable retirement and you know that financial security that is certainly a big part of what we try to accomplish, um, peace of mind. I've seen clients who've been able to put their kids through college. And so it's very rewarding to be around long enough to see people go from their working years to their retirement. And of course, the path is never perfectly smooth. You know, getting people from A to C, um, there's usually some potholes and things that just don't exactly work out the way we expect them to. But little mistakes, small deviations and problems can be worked through and worked around. But I've also been on the other side and seen the big mistake, the one that not only destroys a person's financial plan and their financial future, but that also has a generational impact. And so what I want to do over the course of um, this podcast and and future episodes is, is share my experience. I want to be able to hopefully offer some guidance to people who may either find themselves currently in this situation or who may at some point find themselves in a similar situation and hopefully make a different choice. Today, I want to share some stories about some mistakes that I've observed over the years. And you'll notice that the common thread in all these is the role of emotion in making decisions and really more specifically greed and fear. As I mentioned, I started over 30 years ago and I began as a teller actually in a savings alone in Southern California. And I remember people coming in with their redemption checks from their mutual funds following Black Monday in 1987. And you know, at that time, I didn't know a prospectus from a stock, from a bond, but I did intuitively know that it was a mistake to sell out when the market dropped. I just, I, it just felt wrong to me. Over the years, again, I've seen some things. So I'm going to share some stories today, and hopefully, like I said, it'll be a benefit to you listeners. So let's go back, first of all, to 2006. And these next couple circumstances I'm going to share involve the over-concentration of a person's net worth in the stock of one particular company. And this occurs typically for two different reasons um, that I've experienced. One is there are clients who work for companies that will give them restricted stock as a part of their compensation or stock options. And what that is for anybody who doesn't know is, is you get the rights to stock that you have to continue to work for the company for a period of time and then you vest and then have the ability to, to sell it and you know invest it and, or do whatever you want with it. That's one way. The other way is, is people who inherit large blocks of stock from someone who passes away. So this first example is the latter of the two. This is a, a, an individual who inherited some stock from a parent. Let's go back to 2006. And at that time, of course, we were in a market that was Going up, we were coming out of the tech boom bubble of uh, 2000 to 2002, which for those of you who remember that, it was kind of a painful two and a half, three years of a 49% drop in the S&P 500. And I just remember, it seemed like every time I reviewed quarterly statements, things just were continually going down. It was just brutal. It seemed like it would never end, but it did. 
And so 2006 was at a more of a growth period of time in a lot of markets. And this individual was referred to me. I looked at his portfolio and he had inherited a significant amount of shares of Bank of America stock, well over 12,000 as I recall. And the value was somewhere around 650 to $700,000. But it also paid a dividend and the dividend was uh, worked out to be over $30,000 a year. So there were a number of uh, financial reasons for him to want to keep the stock. And of course, then there was the sentimental reason or the emotional attachment to it, which was because he inherited it from a, a deceased parent. That's a tough hurdle for a financial advisor to work through. And I, I didn't succeed in this situation. There were all the good logical reasons to divest himself of the stock, or at least most of it, which is what I recommended. You know, you try to honor the emotional attachment somebody might have to a position. And so I, my suggestion was to keep a couple hundred shares or something like that, as I recall, and but get rid of the rest because the rest of that amounted to about 60% of his net worth. So it was a big, big chunk of his wealth tied up in this one company. And my plan was to you know, reinvest to diversify, which would have served obviously to reduce the concentration risk, but also would have actually bumped up his income quite a bit. In his mind, there was just no reason to do it. He had a good income. It was a stable company. And um, again, it was a, it was inheritance. So he chose to hold on to his position. Well, everybody knows what happened a couple of years later. And for those of you who are watching this on YouTube, I'm going to share a screen with you and I'll describe what we're looking at to those who are listening to this podcast. So this is a chart of what happened during the Great Recession to B of A stock. And you can see that like most companies, the value peaked in October of 2007. And then as the economy started to blow up, particularly the financial sector, the value of the stock, as you can see, dropped over 90% in what about, uh, was it a year and a half? 90% drop. And so the $650,000 value was now uh, at about $60,000. But the other part of it that was equally devastating for this individual was the income. The dividend per share for B of A uh, in October of 2007 was $2.52 a share. The dividend got cut to $0.04 a share annually, which meant his $30,000 plus income was now $500 a year. So every positive that was existed when we had met was now completely gone. And this is the risk. Things always turn, you know, life changes as everybody knows. This isn't rocket science, but it's just a matter of how much of a, an impact a market like this can have. And it was brutal enough. I mean, this chart compares, shows you what the S&P did, which was still down over 50%, which was still bad. But financial stocks in particular, because as you remember, Lehman went out of business. Bear Stearns got bought out by uh, JP Morgan. You know, there are a number of banks that, uh, Washington Mutual ended up being a casualty, as I recall. I mean, it was a pretty disaster, or it was Wachovia, one of the two. Anyway, it was a pretty disastrous period of time for financial stocks. And what's even more interesting, too, is, is here we are 13 years later. The dividend is back up to about, I think it's 84 cents a share now. So it's not quite even halfway back to where it was in 07. But the stock itself is $39 a share right now when it was 52 at its uh, peak in 07. So 13 years later, the value of the position hasn't even gotten back to where it was. So not keeping up with inflation, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I've seen this particular scenario played in other situations. One other one I'll share with um, was a, an individual who inherited Boeing stock from a spouse who worked there. So Again, not only was the – and Boeing, of course, did extremely well and peaked at over $400 a share 
uh, in the early part of 2019. And so I had a client whose the stock was 90% of their net worth, but it just kept going up. And so despite the counsel of her accountant and myself, we managed to help her carve off some of the shares of the account, but it just kept going up and, and there wasn't a good reason in, in her mind to get rid of it. Well, again, as we know, the COVID happened in March of 2020, which had a devastating impact on a lot of uh, industries, particularly the airlines, which of course, you know, impacted Boeing. And the stock went from the 400 or so it was uh, per share in 2019 to below 100, the bottom of the COVID drop in March of 2020, and still today trades at around 184. So it's a difficult situation to try to insert logic into very emotional situations for people. So I offer this with the hopes that somebody who ultimately finds himself in this situation will be able to separate their emotions and the sentimental attachment to the stock and allow logic to have an equal weighting in the decision. Now, the next thing we're going to talk about is people who have excessive contributions of stock in companies they work for. So let's go back in history a little further to the never-to-be-forgotten dot-com era, the tech boom, the era of irrational exuberance, as Alan Greenspan said. And this was a time where, as an advisor, I have to say, I was glad to see this kind of come and go. It was a period where diversification, where goals where risk management really gave way to purely just performance-driven investing. And this was a time where I had a few former clients who expressed unhappiness with their 25% returns when they feel like they could have gotten 30 or 40 in something else. Uh, I remember one guy actually laughed at me when I told him he ought to consider maybe diversifying into either some fixed income. He was concerned about risk, but at the same time, his thought was, why would I go into something that's going to pay me 5 or 6% when I can get 20% here as if this was a guarantee every year? So it was definitely a strange time. You may remember the commercials, the discount broker commercials. There was the one I always go back to, which was the man with the tow truck who's driving along and he's got some businessman in there. He's hauling his his car to the shop and the businessman looks down and notices uh, some kind of financial periodical in his in his vehicle and starts asking him questions, kind of with that arrogant you know attitude like, what does this guy know? And tow truck guy's just kind of happily driving along and it turns out that he's already retired in his mid-30s and uh, he has a picture of his house on his sun visor, which is an island. And he says, it's actually technically a country. <laughs> so that was the era. As long as you were investing in some kind of stock that was tied to technology, you know, you were going to do well. And again, as is typically the case, people thought it would never end. I was actually getting calls in those days on companies. There's a thing called the NASDAQ pink sheets, which is a listing of companies that trade publicly but aren't big enough to be listed on an exchange. And they're typically, you know, penny stocks, $5 or less. And I'd get calls on these companies that weren't even listed on the pink sheets. I mean, they were like, they had a dot com after their name, but you couldn't find any information. And it was, people were just looking for the next Microsoft. So it was a crazy period. So, in the context of that background, I remember I had a meeting with a client who actually was referred, who had uh, worked for a company that at the time called Connexent, which was a spinoff from Rockwell International in 1999. They were a semiconductor company. They did something to do with integrated circuits. I'm not a, a techie guy myself. Bottom line is they were a tech company and they went public in 99 or were spun off in 99. And the price had gone up to over $130 in March of 2000. So, of course, right at the peak, right? 
this uh, lady came in. She had a million dollars worth of of stock options that she could exercise, and you know, a million dollars then was if you discounted at three percent. You know, today it would be worth about one point nine million. So it was a significant amount of money, and she was at a later point in her life. And you know, of course, the advice, as you can imagine, what it was was dump it. <laughs> you know, get rid of it, diversify a portfolio, and, and retire successfully. She had what she needed to be very comfortable. But she was attached to the company, you know, they're going places, they're doing great things, you know, the stock's going to keep going up. I mean, again, it's kind of the same story, just with different circumstances. And as you can probably guess, it's ended the same way. August of that same year, the price had then got fallen down below 30. Um, eventually, two private equity firms bought out at the Connexon stock for $2.40, and they eventually filed bankruptcy in... Um, 2013. So it's sort of the same principle. It's just these emotional attachments or a perceived sense of loyalty to a company. I you know, don't believe corporate America is loyal to anybody. It's always ultimately what's best for the company. And so it confuses me a little when people feel this sense of loyalty and that they're doing something wrong by getting rid of this company's stock. But I mean, anybody who's old enough to remember Enron, you know, that's that's the first thing you should think of whenever you own company stock, no matter how great your company is. And fortunately, um, that's one I haven't seen too much of. I've known people who've received stock options from companies they work for that just as much as they love the company they were with, they understood the need to just continue to get rid of it because as it accumulated, the percentage of the net worth of the stock would continue go up if they held it and getting rid of stock you know there's tax consequences to it you know it's not a free ride but you know what's worse you know paying some taxes on a, on a big gain or or you know seeing the company that you own these options and go bankrupt and in this case completely miss an opportunity to retire successfully and be comfortable so that's that part of it. I want to shift gears and, and share with you one more experience and this will be with the great recession and um, really the opposite of all this, which the stock ownership's examples are more greed. Selling out and panicking in down markets is obviously more fear. And so we'll, we'll explore that next. The last circumstance involving emotion in making decisions occurs during challenging markets. And this is where fear takes over. And of course, the best example for that in recent memory is the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. What I learned from this, I mean, a number of things, but one in particular was the need to have some kind of logic to try to go to to offset the fear, offset the emotion. And and so the anchor, the logical anchor in a financial situation, in my mind, is a plan. There's got to be a financial plan in place and not just something that is sort of there that everybody knows is there, but something that is constantly and regularly reviewed so it's real. Because that's the tendency is if that anchor isn't in place, then once the wind shifts and the storm starts, you know, the ship gets blown off course and can potentially get blown out to sea and maybe even sink. And that's what this story is going to be a little bit about anyway, um, this experience. So that's important, having a plan in place. Now, it was a very difficult time. It wasn't just a recession. Financial institutions, big ones, were going under. And, you know, the Dow at the time, I'm looking at the chart here, had peaked at over 14,000 in 2007. We talked about that earlier. And then eventually over about the next year and a half dropped down to under 6,600 at one point. So a significant drop uh, of over 50%. But it wasn't just that. It was what was happening. And of course, 
this has its roots in bad loans in the housing market. Um, and for anybody who's interested, there's a really good movie. I believe it's called The Big Short. That is kind of a documentary on what happened throughout this period of time and sort of the attitude that went along with it, which is kind of interesting. There was kind of two or three big events in this, at least from my perspective, without getting into all the weeds of it. But one was when um, the government said it would guarantee Bear Stearns bad loans. Bear Stearns was a global wealth management firm and had they gone under, that would have really inserted a big problem into the global economy at the time. The government basically enticed JP Morgan to buy out Bear Stearns to prevent that from happening. But the bigger one was in September of 2008 when Lehman actually was allowed to go bankrupt. Because you remember following that a week later, or a few days later, AIG was was purchased by the government. But Lehman was left to go under. And of course, when you start seeing staples on Wall Street closing their doors, um, you know, we're human beings. And of course, the first question that goes into your mind, well, if Lehman can fail, you know, Remember the too big to fail? Well, when we start realizing that things aren't too big to fail, that's where the fear comes in because where does it end? That was a big part of it. And then, of course, there's the newspapers and the, and the media. And I think that's another thing that I really would encourage. News is always in extremes. You may remember that guy back in um, during the dot-com era that wrote the book, Dow 30,000. You know, and then you get these other extremes where, you know, people are predicting Armageddon. And I think one thing I've – another thing I've learned is is the truth is always somewhere in the middle. And you have to just read things and and hopefully really glean out a lot of the, uh, you know, the sensationalism from, from real journalism, which has gotten harder and harder to do over the years. But at least find things that are reliable that then you can kind of weigh against others to try to come to your own truth. These are some of the headlines just as a reminder of what people were having to deal with aside from watching the news every day in CNBC, which, of course, you know, all they do is it's a day-to-day view of financing and investing. It's what's going on now. Here's one. Lehman collapse sends shockwaves around the world. That was from a, at the Times in, on September 16th of 2008. Mounting fears shake world markets as banking giants rush to raise capital. Wall Street Journal, September 18th. Panic grips credit markets, Financial Times, September 18th. Worst crisis since 30s with no end yet in sight. Good piece of uh, risible screed published by the Wall Street Journal on September 18th. None of this is inspiring anybody to stay the course. None of this is inspiring anybody to do anything but react. So that's the other challenge in markets like this is the media. And then I guess the other thing would be just, you know, watching your account values drop and you know, is, is irresponsible as some might think. There is there is something to be said for just taking the statements, sticking them in a drawer, and you know, letting it go for six months. Again, I guess that presumes that you're not invested in speculative positions to begin with. But that's another story for another discussion. So that's what we're dealing with. I will just share one thing I remember from this period of time, and it was the week of October. I think it was um, the sixth, October sixth, from the sixth to the tenth. And the Dow dropped about 18% that week. But what I remember about it was at least a couple of days where, you know, I remember going to lunch at probably just to grab a quick bite downstairs in our building at around, you know, 1215, 1230. And one day in particular, I remember thinking, well, if the market's only down 80 points, that's a good day compared to how it had been. And to only to come back and see that there was this last minute day in selling, you know, seven, 800 points down. 
And it was just like getting beat up, you know, boom, 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 right? <laughs> One punch after the other. And finally, you know, and it, then it continued well into March. So it was difficult. I had a couple that I'd worked with who financially, again, from the logical perspective, had money in the bank, had plenty of income coming in from her job and from uh, rental income, you know, they own property, diversified. I mean, it was just, it was a good setup, I felt, and one that could certainly weather this kind of a storm. But what happened was, is the every six month review became a kind of a quick conversation every couple of weeks to every week to eventually almost every day. And what was happening is, is these people were allowing themselves to get sucked into to what they were watching on TV. And pretty soon people that wouldn't normally ever pay attention to what the Dow was doing, even on a monthly basis, you know, maybe casually, were now gripped to what was going on on an hourly to moment by moment basis. And eventually allowed themselves to get kind of pulled into that that whirlpool and get sucked in and decided they couldn't take anymore. And that was uh, February of 2009, three weeks before the market actually bottomed. So that was unfortunate. You know, having a plan, having a, the logical way of looking at the fact that they had a good diversified portfolio uh, on a number of fronts, a, you know, income stream wasn't enough. They surrendered to the moment, I guess you could say. Now, that was bad, okay? Selling at the bottom is bad, but there's something that's actually worse. And what's worse is sitting in cash and not knowing when to get back in and watching the market go up month after month and then year after year and realizing at some point that, you know what? We just blew it. We made a huge mistake. And that's what happened. Um, people talk about timing the market and you know, Nick Murray has always said, you got to get it right twice. You got to know when to sell, but even worse, and or I should say harder, is when do you get back in? I've never seen anybody do that successfully ever because you can't. You know, the market turns around, but the fear of what's just happened is so fresh in your mind. You know, it's, it's like a dead cat bounce. Well, it's just coming up, but, you know, maybe something worse is going to happen. To me, investing and even working with a financial advisor is like a marriage. Either you're in or you're out. And in this case, unfortunately, this couple made the decision to be out to their detriment because we all know what followed, which was a pretty much of a good 10 plus year run with a few interruptions in between where the Dow, you know, at the time bottomed out, at, as I said, 6,600 and sits at well over 30,000 today. But the other thing is, and that's, I think, is an impact that doesn't get discussed a lot. And that is the impact on posterity, on future generations within that family. and. The legacy that gets passed on is grandma and grandpa lost money in the stock market. You know, there's no way to really quantify that, but how does that impact the decisions when these grandkids, as an example, get older and they have a 401k? Is that going to have some kind of a, a stigma, you know, investing in the market? Are these people destined to, you know, keeping their money in, in bank accounts the rest of their life where it's a guaranteed loss? So that's it. It's really just, I think, somehow trying to prepare yourselves for the worst but more importantly, diversifying and really having an active plan, one that is as part of, of your life as, as anything else might be. I know that that helped get a lot of people through. In fact, a success story I'll share during this period of time was a couple that I met with right at the bottom. Literally, it turned out March 9th, we had a meeting, the bottom of the market, or maybe it was March 10th, the day after. But anyway, it was literally right as it turned out, the turning point. And we looked at the carnage, so to speak, of their accounts and had a you know an educated I'd say more 
rational discussion and the decision was made, stay put. And of course, that was a nice story because two years later, you know, they made the right call. And I remember telling that couple, share this experience with your kids because just as, as detrimental as, as the other story I just shared experience was, this was a real positive and will have a positive impact on their, you know, their children as they become adults and make decisions like this going forward. I'll close this episode with a quote I got from one of my clients who read this in the Wall Street Journal. I think this actually really captures this perfectly. And it is, you can be pretty sure you're manifesting courage as an investor when you listen to what your gut tells you, and then you do the opposite. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Upthinking Finance. Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.